Mad Cats. Won't be seen tonight, so we can bring you a very special episode of The Gen X Files. Welcome to The Gen X Files. I'm Jim. I'm Adam. And today's show is all about A, a Nightmare, Nightmare on, on Elm Street. Street. Come to Freddy. Yeah. Come on, Freddy's dead. You know, uh, my mother dreams. and my grandmother, they grew up on Elm Street, so it was always fun visiting my grandmother's house. Did you have a lot of nightmares? Uh, in fact, they also lived at the, on a dead end in front of a cemetery. Ew. <laughs> it Explains was a lot. Explains a lot. It was great. It was great. Uh, take yourself back. 1984. Yes, big brother. <laughs> there he is. May 11th, a fire at the Haunted Castle attraction at Six Flags Great America in New Jersey traps and kills eight teenagers. Six Flags is indicted on aggravated manslaughter. The trial jury found the defendants not guilty of criminal charges. However, Six Flags paid millions in civil damages to the victims' families. How horrifying. All of, and anytime there's a incident at an amusement park or a fair or something, it, it breaks my heart a little bit more just because people were going there to have such a good time. Yeah, and yeah. To die in a horrible, fiery death, trapped inside of a haunted attraction? Yeah. It's a little too on the nose, man. <laughs> it goes from your best day ever to your worst day ever. How'd you die? Well, I was trapped inside of a haunted attraction and burned to death. C- really? No. How did you die? <laughs> well. Uh, horrifying. July 4th, the Beverly Rooming House fire at the Elliott Chambers, a low-rent rooming house in Beverly, Massachusetts, kills 15 people and injures 11 more. The fire was set by a man whose ex-girlfriend was going out with someone who was staying in the building. Short-sighted. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go. I'm standing by that. It's a bold stance. Yeah. You know? But what? Good Lord, man. What? Who decides? Well... This guy's dating my ex. Yeah, man. <laughs> Better burn the house down. Okay. He's with his friend, drinking Schlitz. Like eight Schlitzes in. He's like, oh, I'm going to burn down that building. And his friend's like, you should do it, man. You should do it. Just burn the whole building down, man. Just show her. You show oh, her. Oh, okay. All right. And then he goes. Okay. And then he, yeah. October 3rd, the pilot for the TV show Dreams, written by Andy Borowitz, who created The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, directed by Bill Bixby, and starring John Stamos, Jamie Gertz, and Kane DeVore, premieres on CBS. Oh, what a day that was. Uh, the only reason I bring this up beyond the fact that it's called Dreams is because I worked with Kane DeVore at AMDA. He was a teacher there. Nice. And Bill yeah. Bixby was the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, he was. And a great uh, director. He directed a ton of and sitcoms I and I had no idea that Andy Borowitz of the Borowitz Report created The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> it, was Things... a, it was a weird moment with yeah, dreams. Yeah, it was. Let me tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs> November 9th, A Nightmare on Elm Street is released in theaters. I see what you did. You had a couple of Bernie Burns and yeah. a little bit of Dream of Dreams. That's right. It took me a really long time to find this stuff. But sure. yeah. Uh, again, another movie, another horror movie released not during Halloween, but the weekend after. But it's because they only had like three weeks from shooting That's true. <laughs> to release. That's true. But man, I got to tell you, this movie, it's probably my favorite out of the bunch. That's why I insisted we ended with this one. Sure. No, I sure. didn't. But, uh, but I love this movie. It was the first movie, because I, you know, I would get creeped out and scared a lot as a kid. Like, I, I remember... Saw The Omen, way too young. Scared oh, the crap yeah, out of me. Yeah. Saw Exorcist, way too young. And that was back when I was a Catholic. So I was just, oh, I was God. convinced that I was the son <laughs> of the devil, or I was going to get right. invaded by the devil. Right. And I was always, you know, like, 
so petrified of the devil coming into me or being, it just shows you what a weirdo I was. <laughs> and when I was a little older and saw the Halloween movies and, and, and Friday the 13th, you know, they scared me and they scared me in a different way. But yeah, yeah. But I remember, remember Laser Tag Larry. Oh, poor Larry. <laughs> what a horrible nickname. I apologize if you ever listen. Uh, well, we went to see that as a double feature with something else. I think it was Chud or something. I don't remember. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and that movie freaked us both the well, F yeah. out, man, because it changed yeah. all the rules. It was, you can't. You can't even sleep. No. Because he will get you. But it, not just that. When he did that Goonie Bird run, oh you know, God. the first time. The and first you're like, time oh, the, God, he can run. The big long arms. Yeah. yeah. And then he's like right in front of you. And, he, and you realize that in, in your safest place, in your bed, yeah. in your dreams, he yeah. can come kill you. It is brilliant. It is so yeah. scary and done in such a great way. It is so creep. And it is truly frightening. I mean, it was yeah. a frightening movie. Very, and very scary. I remember, I'm just going to go down this, I'm going to get this out of the way. I know I've talked about growing up in a haunted house sure. during our Halloween months, our spooktobes. Yeah. But this was the only time after watching this movie that anybody else experienced the spook in my house because uh, we were downstairs and this was before I had moved upstairs, you know, to the, to yeah. the loft where all the real stuff happened. The attic. The attic. It, well, it was not an attic. It was just a sure. second floor. An unfinished second floor in a brand new house. It wasn't. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> so Larry and I, you know, we come back. We're creeped out trying to watch something, you know, to take our minds off of the creep. And then it, always because Larry had lived in a house that had very healthy foods. He always wanted cookies when he came over to yeah. my house. So he said, let's go get some cookies. I'm like, all right, we'll get you some cookies. So we open the door, and we take one step out into the dark hallway, and we hear, from upstairs. And I'm like, did you hear that? He's like, yep. And then, and and this is true, in any instance of danger, Larry always pushed me in front of him (laughs) as a human shield, uh, and then would run away. And so he did that. And I'm like, nope. And then we're like, no cookies. And we went back, and we didn't come out of the room until the next morning because we were both so freaked out. Wow. I, I didn't realize I had more in common with Laser Tag Larry than I thought. Because <laughs> yeah. I would definitely push you in front of me and run away. Yeah. It was, he did that one time. The stepdad came around the corner with a gun, and Larry saw it, pushed me in front of him, and uh, oh, there you go. You know, ran away. <laughs> that Laser Tag Larry. <laughs> uh, he had a lot more to live for than me. So. Yeah. Oh, well, Okay. All right. Well, we got to start with Nightmare on Elm Street. We got to start with, of course, writer and director Wes Craven. Yes. Craven was born in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1939. He was raised in a very strict Baptist family. Craven earned an undergraduate degree in English and psychology from Wheaton College in Illinois, and a master's degree in philosophy and writing from Johns Hopkins University. Smarty. He was a very intelligent man. In the mid-60s, Craven had a series of teaching jobs at colleges and high schools, which is what you do when you have a master's degree in philosophy. During this time, he purchased a used 16mm film camera and began making short movies. His friend Steve Chapin informed him of a messenger position at a New York City film production company where his brother, future folk rock star Harry Chapin, worked. His first creative job in the film industry was as a sound editor. Nice. And he had to do that with a blade 
That wasn't like oh yeah, it wasn't yeah. digital like it is today. No, it was, it was physically uh, cutting stuff. You had a little cheekity cheek. It was yeah. tough, man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very hard. Recalling his early training, Craven said, "Harry was a fantastic film editor and producer of industrials. He taught me the Chapin method of editing: nuts and bolts, nuts and bolts, get rid of the shit." Craven afterward became the firm's assistant manager and broke into film editing with "You've got to walk it like you talk it, or you'll lose that beat." In 1971. Well, first thing you should have edited was the title. <laughs> it's such Louise. a long title. Uh, the movie was written and directed by Peter Locke. It involves a young hippie and his search for the meaning of life while in Central Park. Its soundtrack includes some of the earliest released music by two members of Steely Dan. Yeah, John Steely and Dan Frimps. Okay. The film also stars Richard Pryor in an early role, playing his signature wino character and actor-director Robert Downey Sr. Ooh. Craven found a steady stream of income by directing pornographic films. Ooh. In the documentary Inside Deep Throat, Craven says he made... Many hardcore X-rated films. Under pseudonyms. Never used his own name. Yeah. <laughs> Shocker. Wes Craven's <laughs> Big Boobs on a Boat. <laughs> Craven's first feature film as director was The Last House on the Left, which was released in 1972. Craven expected the film to be shown at only a few theaters, which, according to him, gave me the freedom to be outrageous and go into areas that normally I wouldn't have gone into and not worry about my family hearing about it or being crushed. Sean S. Cunningham, eventual creator of the Friday the 13th franchise, served as a producer and actually pooled his resources with Craven to come up with the last house budget of $90,000. Yikes. That's so little. Yeah. Ultimately, the movie was screened much more widely than he assumed, leaving him ostracized due to the content of the film. Yeah, it, but it wasn't, I mean... At the time? Oh, Last House on the Left. Okay, I was yeah. thinking of the people under the stairs. No, no. Last House on the Left, at the time, no one had made a movie like that. That was about, like, sexual revenge. assault. Yeah. yeah. The girls get assaulted at the beginning, and then the parents go on a murderous revenge spree and kill everyone. They remade that. They did. Yeah. They did. It was a great movie, and it was freaky, and it was done, it was such a low budget, it was done very cinema verite. Yeah, yeah, like, uh... Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It had yeah. that sense of dread to it. Yeah, like it's like you're watching something you shouldn't be. Exactly. Yeah. After the negative experience of Last House, Craven attempted to move out of the horror genre and began writing non-horror films with Cunningham, none of which attracted any financial backing. Okay, okay. Here's here's my pitch. So there's this guy named, um, let's call him Ted Bloobs, Bloober. Ted Bloober. And so Ted Bloober comes into your dreams, and he takes you to the Candylands, and uh, he gets you candy and presents and things, and, and everybody just has a really good time riding around on a, a unicorn that shoots rainbows out of its ass or something. I don't know. What do you think? I'm going to pass. Ah, damn it. I'm going to have to go back to horror. Based on advice from a friend about the ease of filming in the Nevada deserts, Craven had an idea for a horror movie. The resulting film, The Hills Have Eyes, cemented Craven as a horror film director with Craven noting, It soon became clear that it, I wasn't going to do anything else unless it was scary. It's true. Well, that was such a good movie, too. It, it is a great movie. The Hills Have Eyes. It's another one of those, I call them dread horror yeah. movies, where yeah. it's just the sense of dread and uncomfortable nature of it just makes it so unsettling to watch. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, the pervasive dread of, like, you know bad things are going to happen. Yeah, and like you said, it's, like, something that you shouldn't be seeing because it's it's not really like anything we've seen before. You know, the, the early Corman stuff kind of had that feel because, you know, you had Coppola and 
Scorsese making these low budget movies. So hey, yeah, they, you know, yeah. you had these guys doing some some pretty crazy stuff, but still in terms of horror movies, these still to this day are the most uncomfortable to watch. Oh, yeah. They're not like, yeah. ooh, fun, you know, like, oh, no, summer no, camp or, no. you know, give me my dreams. It's more like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. I, whew, I need a shower. I, I think the only modern movie like that uh, would be Irreversible. Yeah. Which is it's just that, that, like, man, I liked, I watched it, I liked it, don't ever need to see it again. No, no. And I think, uh, the new Dahmer series has that quality. Oh, really? Yeah, it's unsettling. Okay. And it, it is. Okay. It's almost too unsettling. I'm wavering back and forth between watching it because... I've enjoyed it. I've heard that it kind of glamorizes him, and I'm not a huge fan. I don't think it glamorizes him. I think it's your typical Ryan Murphy retelling of right. something. I don't think it, you know, is glorifies, well, hey there, you know, <laughs> I'm a good guy, I, and I'm misunderstood. No, I think it's a... it's gross i think it's a pretty frank portrait so far maybe yeah. it changes and turns into a musical and they start you know saying how wonderful he was but so far so good and again even peters oh yeah he's fantastic god such a great actor he is evan he, peters i know yes yes in 1981 west craven directed deadly blessing with ernest borgnine and a young sharon stone ernest borgnine yeah he was great he was uh i've never seen this so I don't you know. haven't Mm-mm. deadly blessing I don't know if I have either. I probably have. I watched all that stuff, but you, I, I'm I don't sure remember. you're a big Craven fan. I'm sure you probably have. I don't think it's obviously not one of his better known movies. No, it's one of the beginnings. In uh, 1982, he wrote and directed Swamp Thing, based on the DC Vertigo comic starring Ray Wise and Adrian Barbeau. Ray Wise was was he the Swamp Thing? I think so. Interesting. I love Ray Wise, uh, but I yeah. don't know. I think he might have been a reporter or something. I don't remember. I, I think they got a big old guy. I remember play. Swamp Thing being on like the paid channels, you know, yeah. like Cinemax and stuff a lot when I was growing up. Didn't realize it was Wes Craven, and I, I honestly couldn't tell you with Ray Wise. I have no idea. No, I don't think it was him. I think it was a big guy playing the the Swamp Thing. But I remember the cover, Adrian Barbeau, looking oh, yeah. all oh, sexy yeah. with the Swamp Thing. I remember really liking the movie. And yeah. also being kind of young and being like, I probably shouldn't be watching this. Yeah. No, I really enjoyed it, too. Shortly after production wrapped on Swamp Thing in 1981, Craven started writing the screenplay for A Nightmare on Elm Street. The basis of the film was inspired by several newspaper articles printed in the Los Angeles Times in the 1970s about Hmong refugees who, after fleeing to the United States because of war and genocide in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, suffered disturbing nightmares and refused to sleep. That's called PTSD. Yeah, obviously. Some of the men died in their sleep soon after. That's creepy, though. That's super creepy. Medical authorities called the phenomenon Asian death syndrome. Good Lord. I, That's, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was a thing, though. I do remember reading about this, and I don't think it's been done since then. But yeah, it's such a severe form of PTSD. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's got to be something else, too. I mean, Well, I imagine. You know, it just seems horrific. Craven stated... It was a series of articles in the L.A. Times, three small articles about men from Southeast Asia who were from immigrant families and had died in the middle of nightmares. And the paper never correlated them, never said, hey, we've had another story like this. Yeah, I... But hey, it inspired Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, so. that was also back when sensationalism, you know, you yeah. always had the weird news of the weird, you know, right, and that was the same right. thing with... Spontaneous combustion, right? And right. There were all these weird stories. You know, can you die in your sleep? That's another myth. You know, if you die in your sleep, you're gonna die. Well, trust me, <laughs> that's not true. I know. The film's villain, Freddy Krueger, is drawn from Craven's early life. One night, a young Craven saw an elderly man walking on the side path outside the window of his home. 
The man stopped to glance at a startled Craven and walked off. This served as the inspiration for Freddy Krueger. That was a really definitive moment for him. Apparently. I wonder what they, that old man was just probably like, hello, little boy. You're going to kill me. Initially, Fred Krueger was intended to be a child molester, but Craven eventually characterized him as a child murderer to avoid being accused of exploiting a spate of highly publicized child molestation cases that occurred in California around the time of production of the film. Nice. Make him a murderer instead of a molester. Yeah, this was the satanic panic stuff in San San Diego. Oh, yes. It was exactly... The McMartin crap and yeah, everything that was yeah. going around, and we talked about it in the last one about it's on all the talk shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was everywhere. Craven took Fred Krueger's name from a bully that harassed him at school. One of the villains in Last House was also named after this bully, but his name was shortened to Krug. Hey, Krug! <laughs> Immediately just sounds like a numbskull. <laughs> yeah, my name's Krug. You know what? I like hot rods and putting cigarettes in my sleeve and uh, beating up guys. <laughs> that I'm secretly attracted to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Krug! <laughs> Craven chose to make Kruger's sweater red and green after reading an article in a 1982 Scientific American that said these two colors were the most clashing colors to the human retina. But they're Christmas! Which is why they're for Christmas, I guess. I, I don't understand. Yeah. For a time, Craven had considered a sickle as the weapon of choice for the killer, but around the third or fourth drafts of the script, the iconic glove had become his final choice. Nice. A sickle would have been a little unwieldy for... Yeah, it would have been a lot. Hold on, let me... And especially in those little... (laughs) (laughs) The boiler, the tight confines of the boiler room. Oh, let me get my sickle. Uh, I just got to unstick it from the wall here. Give me a second. Give me a second. You're not too scary, Kruger. (laughs) Upon completion of the script, Craven pitched it to several studios, but each one of them rejected it for different reasons. The first studio was Walt Disney Productions, although they wanted Craven to tone down the content to make it suitable for children and preteens. Oh, hey, look, how you doing? I want you to tone it down and make it okay for kids. What? What could they have? What could he have cut down to make it okay? It would have changed entirely. Hey, look! All they have to do is say "boo" when they're scared, and they wake up and they're scared. So I think it goes without saying that Craven declined this. Yeah, and moved on. F you, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> After st- another studio, Craven pitched to was Paramount Pictures, which passed on the project due to its similarity to Dreamscape, which was slated to be released in 1984. Yeah, they made the wrong choice on that one. I don't. I Dreamscape. Is that with Dennis Quaid? Yeah. Yeah, okay. It okay. was it was an interesting movie. It didn't do very well, though. No. I, don't, I, saw, I of course, I saw it in the theater. Of course, I saw everything in the theater back then. I, saw, I definitely saw it on TV, but I remember, I just remember being Dreamscape, and I was like, oh, it must be cool, and yeah. I think I saw it once. Yeah, dude turns into the snake at the end. And oh, yeah. They're trying to murder the president. It was like, it was, it was like a dream assassins. Oh, oh, okay. And, and uh, the guy from Warriors that goes, Warriors, come out to oh, play. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was He's the bad like, guy. And he was like the good. They had like a program about getting in your dreams, and Dennis Quaid and some lady. Oh, and, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and, yeah. Then the, and then he, the Warriors guy, was the the like you know second best or the best, and he had messed up brains, so he oh, got in there and yeah. they made him an assassin. And then then they had to go. Dennis Quaid and Kate Capshaw, I believe, had to go oh, and wow. uh, and stop him from killing the president. Wow! And it turns into a big Dreams snake. Dreams. Yeah. Well, you, I don't have to watch the movie again. Nope, do not. That is <laughs> succinct and apt. Universal Studios also passed. Craven, who was in desperate personal and financial straits during this period, later framed the company's rejection letter on the wall of his office, which reads in its December 14th, 1982 print, We have reviewed the script you have submitted, A Nightmare in Elm Street. Unfortunately, 
The script did not receive an enthusiastic enough response from us to go forward at this time. However, when you have a finished print, please get in touch and we would be delighted to screen it for a possible negative pickup. Yeah, it's such a typical executive oh, yeah. response. Basically, we don't want to give you the money to make it, but once right. you make it, if it's good enough, we'll jump on those coattails. Yeah. <laughs> we'll pay you a pittance to pick it up. Finally, the fledgling and independent New Line Cinema Corporation, which had up to that point only distributed films, agreed to produce the movie. During filming, New Line's distribution deal for the film fell through, and for two weeks it was unable to pay its entire cast and crew. Oh, man. Yeah, I can just imagine. That would suck so much. Oh, yeah. Being a young company and being like, I'm sorry. Well, and a lot of those actors are SAG. Yeah. You know, yeah. so you, you, the penalties from delaying yeah. pay yeah. even back then. Although New Line has gone on to make bigger and more profitable films, A Nightmare on Elm Street was its first commercial success, and the studio is often referred to as the house that Freddy built. Yeah, I built that house. Yeah, come to Freddy. They had a revolving carousel of investors agreeing and backing out all the way through production. The original budget was $700,000. Robert Shea, producer and founder of New Line Cinema, said, It ended up at $1.1 million. Half the funding came from a Yugoslavian guy who had a girlfriend he wanted in movies. As was far as I know, girlfriend? she was not cast in anything. So. Was that the other Langan camp? I don't think so. No. Uh, but they did cast Heather Langenkamp. Yeah, it was Lin Shea. Lin Shea. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if the founder of New Line Cinema, Robert Shea and Lin Shea, are related. I don't know. Uh, I think it's I spelled differently. I should have looked that up. They're, it's not. It isn't. No, they're spelled the same. Yeah, it's it pretty, had an E on the end, which I think is weird. But I'm sure. I mean, it's a pretty common Irish name, yeah, yeah. I believe. It is. It is. So the cast, Heather Langenkamp is Nancy Thompson. Oh, hi. Oh, boy. I should have taken some acting classes. She is, to me, honestly, the epitome of Girl Next Door. Like, she just has that face where it's like, this is somebody I grew up with. Oh, yeah. She does definitely have the look of the mousy yeah, Midwestern. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Even though she lives in California. <laughs> um, but it's all those... It's all the little vests and, and the way they dress her and, and prim and props. <laughs> Phoebe watched this with us, and at least twice she was like, what is Nancy wearing? I know. She, she's wearing, like, a, a church secretary's outfit <laughs> she was, most of the time. So Just showed that she's a pure, she she's is. A pure girl. She's a, she's a pure girl. Craven said that he wanted someone very non-Hollywood for the role of Nancy. And he got it. Believe Langenkamp fit the bill. She appeared in several commercials and Passions, a TV movie starring Joanne Woodward and Lindsay Wagner, which aired in October of 1984. Yeah, the wife of Paul Newman and the yeah. bionic woman herself, Lindsay Wagner. Uh, she, Langenkamp had actually been cast in The Outsiders and Rumblefish in 1983 and actually shot scenes, but all of her scenes had been deleted. Yeah, there's probably, I would like to see the override. Okay, look, she's so much better now, and this was her first thing, and I'm not, I'm going to just, I'm trying to be positive too but in terms of the acting she's a little green around the gills she's definitely there's definitely and especially i'm sure they probably shot it in in pretty much like order because the beginning of that movie she is not good no there's some bad lines in that movie yeah yeah and again the script probably isn't the best and there's it's hard as a, a kid to make like you know Quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Quit yanking my chain. You know, it's just like whenever they try to put. I was telling you, I'm reading the Stephen King book now. It's right, supposed right. to be uh, written by a 17 year old. And whenever he puts in, like, oh, you're the bee's knees, kid. It's uh, like, no, I'm sorry. You're 17. <laughs> you're too big for your britches. You know, those kind of things just don't work. Right, it, right. But she just, I think, had the hardest time. Yeah. She yeah. was trying really hard. 
No, and she she definitely as the movie progressed, she was much better. Yeah. I, like it, it got better. There's just moments when beginning it's like, is a little, little cringy. Yeah, there, but there are moments too when she's great. Oh yeah, like yeah, towards yeah, the yeah. end when she's just like, "I'm gonna come get you, effer." You know, when she when she has more purpose. Yeah, she's much stronger. Yeah. Yes, I believe so, and I think. You know, maybe she wasn't getting solid stuff back from her mom, too, when they were doing their scenes together. Because it was like <laughs> watching uh, one of his early movies yeah, yeah. without the sex in it. Oh, yes. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Heather Langenkamp had taken time off her studies at Stanford to continue acting. She landed the role of Nancy Thompson after an open audition, beating out more than 200 actresses. Langenkamp was already known to Annette Benson, the casting director, as she had auditioned for Night of the Comet and The Last Starfighter previously, losing out to Catherine Mary Stewart on both occasions. Oh, my crush. Catherine yeah. Mary Stewart. She's awesome. She's awesome. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. Demi Moore, Courtney Cox, Tracy Gold, and Jennifer Grey have all been rumored to have auditioned for Nightmare on Elm Street. Too edgy. Uh, Too edgy. They didn't have the innocence that she had. And I'll yeah. give that to Langenkamp. Jennifer Grey may have. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, but definitely Demi Moore and Courtney Cox would have been too much. But yeah, but I, but Langenkamp was the perfect choice. Because Langenkamp is, she's a beautiful woman, mm-hmm. but she wasn't made to be beautiful. She, she wasn't plain, but she not was like, not. Like supermodel beautiful. Yeah, I mean, yeah. all of these kids, with the exception of maybe Johnny Depp, look, <laughs> and, and the other guy who looks like he came out of the road company of Greece. So <laughs> the two guys look like Hollywood guys. But the, yeah. both, the, both her and um, Amanda Weiss. Amanda Weiss are both perfectly cast, I think. Yeah, they're both of... they're both down to earth, like girl next door. Kind exactly, of thing. Yeah, look like yeah. they could be Midwestern ladies. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, Langenkamp returned as Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street Three: Dream Warriors in 1987, and also played a fictionalized version of herself in Wes Craven's New Nightmare in 1994. That was fun. I enjoyed A New Nightmare. I thought it was an I interesting. Thought I had seen it. I don't think I have. Really? Yeah, I yeah. don't think I have. It's very meta. It's yeah, like one of yeah. those we're making a movie. But the movie is real, kind of thing. It was the we'll talk about it more later. But it was the first time that Craven came back to work on the franchise again. Well, he was so relevant again because of Scream. Yeah. So he needed to well Screamify. This was Nightmare. before Scream. Really? Yeah. Night- this was, Scream was in ninety six. Ninety six or ninety seven. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, but it's I, I think the I think he had this idea of like how do I make this fresh again, and that's where New Nightmare came out. Interesting. Langenkamp also made an appearance in Hellraiser Judgment in 2018. She can currently be seen as Dr. Stanton in The Midnight Club on Netflix. Nice. Glad she's still working. Yeah, she's still doing it. John Saxon was cast as Lieutenant Donald Don Thompson. Lieutenant Don Donald Thompson. What are you doing? <laughs> I... Oh, come on, Nancy, just go to sleep. There's nothing to see here. But he Daddy! So... Oh, Nancy, stop it. You're just being a weirdo. Just cut it out. But Daddy, I just... Stop it. Nancy... You're an idiot. He was the epitome of every character that I hate in horror movies. Yeah. That just immediately goes, this is not happening. What are you doing here, Nancy? But for some reason with John Saxon, I totally buy it. Well, yeah, because he's just got that no-nonsense, I-don't-give-an-F kind of attitude that works really well. Yeah. Like, all of those kind of 70s guys, you know, yeah. they all yeah. have that same kind of Marlboro attitude, yeah, you know? T- t- tough they're guy. smoking, yeah. they're tough guys, they don't have time for your nonsense. No. <laughs> 
No. John Saxon studied acting with Stella Adler before beginning his career as a contract actor for Universal Pictures, appearing in such films as the musical Rock Pretty Baby in 1956, Salminio, and the neo-noir Portrait in Black in 1961 with Lana Turner and Anthony Quinn, which earned him a reputation as a teen idol and won him a Golden Globe Award for New Star of the Year actor. Oh, yeah, he was dreamy when he was a youngie. Oh, yeah. He was a handsome dude. Yes, very handsome, but very, very severe. It's just so funny because I don't, I've never seen any of his early stuff, so like it's weird to think of him as being like a teen idol. Uh, Saxon, who had done martial arts since 1957, appeared as the martial artist Roper in 1973's Enter the Dragon, Bruce Lee's first major Hollywood film. Which was weird because that character went on to buy a building in Santa Monica <laughs> and rent to uh, two girls and a guy, but the guy had to pretend like he was gay. Yeah. Uh, Jack Tripper. Yeah. You know, sometimes three's a crowd, but... In that case, three was company. <laughs> John Saxon made his horror film debut in Black Christmas in 1974 with Margot Kidder, Olivia Hussey, and Keir Delea, written and directed by Bob Clark. Yeah. Black uh, Christmas. Black Christmas is my favorite horror movies of this all time. Is, I've like, I love how Bob Clark directed the two <laughs> bookends of Christmas. He did. <laughs> like the, the most evil Christmas movie and the sweetest Christmas yeah. movie. It's a good double feature. Bob Clark Christmas experience. Uh, But definitely, definitely, definitely watch the original Black Christmas. There have been like three remakes, and they're all trash. Oh, yeah. I'm not usually like the kind that's like, you know, oh, remakes suck. They're just bad. No, that's me. I'm the guy that... I know. Uh, But definitely watch the original Black Christmas. He continued to play cops throughout most of the 80s, such as in Running Scared in 1980 and Blood Beach in 1981. This beach. It's Blood Beach. (laughs) It's, It's made of blood. With a foray into sci-fi with Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980. Battle Beyond the Stars. He was fantastic in that. Also, another one of my favorite horror movies, he made a memorable appearance in Dario Argento's Tenebre in 1982. Oh, yeah. Which is such a fantastic movie. Oh, Dario. He was a creep. He was weird. (laughs) Over his career, he appeared in more than 200 projects in film and TV. On July 25th, 2020, Saxon died of complications from pneumonia, 11 days shy of his 84th birthday. Aww. But he's got such a huge oeuvre. Like, he's got such a good pantheon of films. Yeah, he does. He's worth, he's worth, definitely worth looking into. Robert England was cast as Fred, Freddy Krueger. Uh, actor David Warner was originally cast to play Freddy. Come to Freddy. <laughs> I will cut you up in your dreams. Uh, Warner had appeared in The Omen and more recently to the movie Tron. Yeah. Tron. 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 Uh, Makeup tests were done, but he had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. I'm sorry, Wes. I have some scheduling conflicts. (laughs) Replacing him proved to be difficult. Uh, Kane Hodder, who would later be best known for playing fellow slasher icon Jason Voorhees, was among those who Wes Craven talked with about the role of Freddy. Craven said, I couldn't find an actor to play Freddy Krueger with the sense of ferocity I was seeking. Everyone was too quiet, too compassionate towards children. Then Robert England auditioned. He wasn't as tall as I'd hoped, and he had baby fat on his face, but he impressed me with his willingness to go to the dark places in his mind. Robert understood Freddy. Ugh. Yeah, that's a little creepy. <laughs> yeah, I totally understood him. He's, not, I got him really good. Yeah, I did. Not make me want to hang out with Robert England. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. In 1976, England auditioned for the role of Han Solo and Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Hey, Greedo. <laughs> I'm going to shoot you first. While he obviously didn't get either part, he actually suggested Mark Hamill for the role of Luke. Nice. 
England appeared in the 1977 film Eaten Alive, directed by Toby Hooper. He then played Ranger in Galaxy of Terror, produced by Roger Corman, released in 1981. England did bit parts in a number of films, but had found more success in TV, doing guest parts in a number of shows like... Soap, Charlie's Angels, Chips, Heart to Heart, and Simon and Simon. Before being cast in the miniseries of V in 1983. Yeah, V. I loved V. That was Aliens. one of my first obsessions when I was young. They were reptilians, Adam. They were hiding. Yeah, they were. Amongst us. And there was that, the Beastmaster was in it. Mark Singer. Mark Singer. Yeah. He, did he bring along his two ferrets? I don't think so, because that was a different character. Yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, casting director Annette Benson had talked Craven into seeing England about the role after he'd auditioned for National Lampoon's class reunion. Remember that one? Nope. <laughs> England had darkened his lower eyelids with cigarette ash on his way to the audition and slicked his hair back. England said, I looked strange. I sat there and listened to Wes talk. He was tall and preppy and erudite. I posed a bit, like Klaus Kinski. And that was the audition. He took the part because it was the only project that fit his schedule during the hiatus between the V miniseries and V the series. Hey, what do I got going between V? Oh, okay. I guess I'll, I be, guess I'll be Freddy. Be Freddy Krueger. England has appeared in all of the Nightmare sequels and the anthology TV show, as well as making a number of guest appearances as himself or Freddy in various TV episodes. Oh, he milked that. Oh, he, he has. He milks it. And, you know, God love him. Everybody uh, would. Rightfully so. Yeah. I mean, I would. Hell yeah. Oh, uh, I remember that anthology show. Yeah. Hey there, kids. Well. <laughs> Welcome to the Nightmare on Elm Street, the series. Today, we're going to meet some guys who are really jerks. Okay. <laughs> He's gone on to get them. He's gone on to do a ton of voice work and can most recently be seen in the current season of Stranger Things. Yeah? He plays a character in Stranger Things. Yeah. Uh, totally. I think he's I think he's only in one episode. But uh but he's he has a scientist or something. Yeah. Trying that to remember. Surprise me. Yeah. Johnny Depp was cast as Glenn Lance. Oh, Johnny Depp. Lance. It's so terrible. Depp moved to Los Angeles with his band when he was 20. After the band split up, Depp's then-wife Lori Ann Allison introduced him to actor Nicolas Cage. Hi, I'm Nicholas Cage. After they became drinking buddies, Cage advised him to pursue acting. You should pursue acting. <laughs> Johnny Depp was unknown when he was cast, initially accompanying his friend Jackie Earl Haley, who would eventually go on to play Freddy in the 2010 remake, to the audition. Weird. Yeah, I know. It's a little weird kismet there. According to Depp, the role of Glenn was originally written as a big, Ron beach jock football player guy. Far from his own appearance, but Wes Craven's daughters picked Depp's headshot from the set he showed them. Of course they did. He's the prettiest human being ever. You forget how just gorgeous he was. He, yeah. He, he was beautiful. It was, it was, yeah, it was hard to not, yeah. He's just such a pretty guy. <laughs> and he was a good guy in the movie, too. He tried to help her. He did. He really did. Uh, Charlie Sheen was considered for the role, but allegedly wanted too much money. He has actually gone on record as stating that he didn't understand the script and kicks himself for not taking the part. I don't get this. I don't get it. <laughs> Easy, Charlie. Did you really, did you understand? Uh, you, you've heard of these things called dreams, right? Nope. <laughs> huh. You know what nightmares are, right? Oh, you betcha. Okay. <laughs> It's rumored that John Cusack, Brad Pitt, Kiefer Sutherland, Nicolas Cage, and C. Thomas Howe are also up for the part, but there is nothing to substantiate this. Yeah, it would have been fine. I think there's been a mythology r rumored around it for sure. the last year. It's every yeah. actor who was young at the yeah, time. Yeah. I bet you Pitt probably did, because he was pretty he was unknown back then. He was very unknown at this point, yeah. 
Uh, though Depp said he didn't have any desire to be an actor, he continued to be cast in projects, making enough to cover the bills that his musical career couldn't. Wow. I bet you there's a thousand million people right now. I bet, I bet you there's a million people right now that are just like that F and F hole. Man, oh, well, I guess I'll just act, make money from my band. Oh, they want me on a series? Sure. I'll do it. I'll do it for the money for my band. Oh, F you, Johnny D. This is precisely why I include this, just for that reaction. Oh, man. God, we would have been, if his musical career had taken off, we never would have a deal with Johnny Depp the actor. Well, that would have been sad, because I love Johnny Depp the actor. Sure, sure. He could most recently be seen in the highly publicized divorce proceedings with his second wife, Amber Heard. Yeah, I stayed away from that. Uh, yeah. Uh, he'll be playing Louis the Fifteenth in an upcoming biopic written and directed by Mai Wen a French actress and filmmaker. Well, I bet it'll be a tour de force performance. Ronnie Blakely was cast as Marge Thompson, Heather Langenkamp's mother in the movie. Uh, Blakely started as a singer-songwriter. Blakely began her music career in New York, improvising vocally with Moog synthesizers in Carnegie Hall to music by Gershon Kingsley. That must have been so weird. I, <laughs> yeah, I Have you ever know. heard of Moog? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But this, by the way... All this fascinated me. I thought she, you know, I, came out of like getting nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> she has this weird long backstory. Her first soundtrack was composed for the 20th Century Fox film Welcome Home, Soldier Boys, starring Joe Don Baker, and earned her a spot in Who's Who in America. Oh, Joe Don Baker! I love Joe Don Baker. Love he was uh, the guy with the baseball bat, Colonel oh, yeah. Buford T. or Sheriff Buford yeah, T. It's, it's Busco or something. Yeah, that's something like that. Blakely released her self-titled debut album on Electra Records in 1972. The album featured Blakely's original songs, self-accompanied on piano. Blakely also made the musical arrangements. The song Bluebird featured a duet with Linda Ronstadt. Oh, wow. That's a great song. Yeah, yeah. That same year, Blakely appeared in Nashville, directed by Robert Altman. I do not remember her in this. But I, if She's I, I got to watch it again. Yeah, one of the leads. I mean, I mean, granted, I know there was like 14 leads in the movie, but yeah. Blakely performed her own songs in character, including Tape Deck in His Tractor, Dues, and My Idaho Home. Blakely's performance in Nashville was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Good God. Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress Motion Picture and for Best Acting Debut in a Motion Picture Female, a BAFTA Award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, and the Grammy Award for Album of Best Original Score Written for a Motion Picture or Television Special. She actually won the National Board of Review Award for Best Supporting Actress. Damn, you go. Ronnie Blakely. Ronnie Blakely? Her guest starring roles in television series include... Vegas, The Love Boat, Highway to Heaven, Trapper John M.D., Hotel, The Runaways, Beyond Westworld, and Tales from the Dark Side. She's most recently wrote, produced, and directed the 2012 film Of One Blood, her first foray into films in over 20 years after taking time off to raise her daughter. You would not have guessed any of this from her performance in Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> uh, I don't think she really understood. I don't know. It's overwrought. It's yeah. the dialogue, too. Look, I don't completely blame no, no. these actors because maybe they were directed super well. You know, he had a lot of stuff on his mind and yeah. he wasn't super concerned about the non-scary scenes or whatever. But she carrying around that big old frosted bottle of oh vodka I, there was a, and, and hiding it, even though she's carrying it all over the house. She's got them hidden all over the house, even though she's... Doing nothing to hide these bottles no, that are no. half as big as she is that she's chugging from. 
Well, that was the the moment when when Heather Langenkamp and her like are making up, and she's laying in bed, and she she has some line I don't know what it is, and then the, the big bottle comes out. I literally laughed out loud. So I couldn't help it. I'm gonna stop drinking too, honey. <laughs> Just get some sleep. Here's my giant jug of vodka. Her whole uh, raison d'être was to get her to go to sleep, and then when she just like takes, I want to show, come down to the basement, and she takes her down there. Tells her the gross Freddy Krueger thing, yeah. and then whips out the the. I kept the finger. She kept the blades. This means okay. This is what it means. It means she went in to the fire and to his corpse yeah. and pulled the blades off and hit him. Well, yeah, there's a reason she's an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, she's a bit of a mess. But uh, <laughs> but man, I really I because again, probably not, not her fault. Not her best performance. But it's a very one note. Yeah. Hi, honey. Yeah. Get some sleep. She's definitely playing the fact that she burned a man to death through the entire entire thing. It's yeah, and, and I don't think that her and, and Heather Langenkamp got a lot of good direction when they were doing their scenes together because a lot yeah. of times they seem like they're in two different movies. And they did they did not have great chemistry. Like it wasn't I didn't buy them as mother and daughter. I mean that was that was part of it. Yeah. She was a bit too young and this was Wes I don't know. She maybe, looked like she should have been Amanda Weiss's mom, really. Yeah, I agreed. Agreed. Uh, and the other actress who played Johnny Depp's mom, who I love. Oh, yeah. She's great. Uh, she, she was so much better. I mean, she just played. The, yeah. Their, her, his parents played it so well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want that crazy girl talking to my son. <laughs> chubby dad. Amanda Weiss was cast as Tina Gray. Uh, Weiss made her acting debut in an episode of Buck Rogers in the 25th century in 1981. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, I know I came down before talking about Miss Amanda Weiss, but... You guys don't talk about me very much anymore, no. the show. So I just wanted to come down and say hey and reiterate that she was such a pleasure to have on set. She brought some donuts for the crew. And her and I had a little bit of a spa day. Mm. Nice. After we shot the episode, she was sweet as pie. All right. Anyway, got to get back. All right. Yep. Back seeing some trouble. <laughs> okay, got to get him out of troops. Yeah, thanks for stopping by, Colonel Wilma Deering. Colonel Wilma Deering. Always, always nice to pop in. She's so pleasant. It's like Beetlejuice. You say the name, she disappears. She's so cute. <laughs> Weiss rose to prominence with Fast Times at Ridgemont High in 1982. Uh, there were no separate auditions for the characters of Tina and Nancy. All the actresses who auditioned for one of the two female roles read for the role of Nancy, and upon potentially being called back, were mixed with other actresses trying to find a pair that had chemistry. That was pretty common back then. That's yeah. kind of like how they yeah. did Star Wars. And, yeah. You know, when it they was... were trying to find new people, it was all right. mixing and matching. Right. Amanda Weiss was among those switched to Tina after a callback. Wes Craven decided immediately upon mixing Weiss and Langenkamp that this was the duo he wanted. Craven then mixed the duo with auditioners for the male teenage roles, trying to find actors who had chemistry with Weiss and or Langenkamp. She appeared in Better Off Dead in 1985. Yeah, she did. If you want more info on Weiss, please listen to our Better Off Dead episode. Yeah, please do. She continues to act in film and TV. Good for her. I like her a lot. Nick Corey is Rod Lane. Rod Lane. The, I guess that was a callback from his earlier sexy movies that he directed. Probably. It's probably one of the names he used as director. Directed by Rod Lane. Uh, uh, Nick Corey's real name is Jesus Jesu Garcia. His first role was on the TV show Fame in 1982, where he used the stage name Tom Fox. Yeah, yeah a thom. Tom Fox. You're picking your own name and you made it a thom. <laughs> F you, buddy. Yeah, he was... Uh, Way too, uh, ooh, hey. Uh, yeah, he, he looked like he was a 30-year-old high school student 
He looked like he had just discovered cocaine. Like, yeah. It was a little much. He's just, again, he was a very handsome guy. Yeah. And I knew him from fame. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed that show and movie. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but he was good. He was good in the part. But he just, again, didn't seem like he was from, again, Yeah. it was... It's hard to picture this as L.A. because there were boilers and basements. And right, right, right. It was right. like a Midwest Los Angeles movie. <laughs> Weird hybrid. Yeah. And then this guy, you know, of course, uh, the only guy, the only person of color is immediately thought of as the murderer. Right. You know, I got to make <laughs> totally, him the bad guy. Totally. After Nightmare, he appeared in a number of movies, including Wildcats 1986, starring Goldie Hawn, with the film debuts of Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes. Oh, such a great movie. And he was really good in that. This guy yeah. is a good actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought he was great in, in I tease Nightmare. him because he's too I mean, pretty. Yeah. <laughs> he was in Predator 2 in 1990, one of the best sequels of all time. Oh, we're doing that. <laughs> and he had a number of guest appearances in TV shows. Garcia is an ordained minister in the movement of spir- spiritual inner awareness founded by John Roger. Okay. Joseph Whip was <laughs> cast as Sergeant Parker, the cop that couldn't figure out that three broken windows in a house might mean something's going on. All right, look, if anything happens, come get me. Anything weird. Okay, I'll do that. Do-do-do, watching the house. Oh my God, help me, he's killing me, he's killing me. Huh? What's <laughs> going on? You better get back to bed. Oh my God, he's after me. He's killing us all, he's killing us all. Huh, that seems a little weird. I don't know. Well, maybe one more time and I'll go get the chief. <laughs> ah, he's right behind me. You can see him now and the place is on fire. Maybe I'll go get the chief now. <laughs> His first credited appearance is in Escape from Alcatraz as a guard. Uh, he would play a lot of cops during his career. <laughs> yeah, and his, his role in Escape well... I guess I'll walk down here and uh, leave the still door open. Hey, look at that. It's a head made out of... Uh, paper mache. Paper mache. <laughs> Papier mache is it spelled, but it's probably real. Anyway, boop a He returned to working with Wes Craven in Scream in 1996, playing Sheriff Burke. He was great. Yeah, he was fantastic. I love Sheriff Burke. He was really great. Most of his career has been in direct-to-home media films and B-movies. Hey, he's a character actor, man. You take it yeah. where you get it, and he yeah. does a good job. Charles Fleischer was cast as Dr. King. Please! In the sleep clinic. Uh, Fleischer is best known for, as the voices of Roger Rabbit, Benny the Cab, Greasy and Psycho, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yep. Great movie. A fantastic movie. I used to see uh, Charles Fleischer all the time in the oh, Whole yeah? Foods down the street. Oh, yeah? Super nice guy. Always said hello. Uh, when we passed, he was such a, a, an incredibly nice person. Oh, yeah. You know, I yeah. wouldn't be like, who, 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 uh, you know, just we ran into no, each other. Yeah, and he yeah. was just super friendly. It's just one of those you see. And there's a, when I take walks in the neighborhood behind us, there is a character actor. I don't know his name, but I run into him like three times a week. And he always smiles and says hi. He always hands you uh, his uh, resume. <laughs> He's fantastic. Yeah. I, I'm waiting to see him in something else so I can point him out and be like, oh, my God, that's the guy. Nice. But, yeah. Yeah, that was the great thing when we had that, before it became that weird robot supermarket oh yeah but we yeah. used to i used to see tons of people that oh, always yeah. had some crazy little adventure with some celebrity yeah 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 like, charles fleischer's gone on to do voice work in polar express Alibard. uh which i didn't realize because i thought they were literally all tom hanks except for the small kid and he made all the sounds of the train <laughs> <laughs> and he also did voiceover in the movie we're back a dinosaur story he's made a number of live appearances in film and tv and continues to do acting Lynn Shea was cast as the teacher. Oh, I love Lynn Shea. 
She's fantastic. Shay is regarded as a scream queen due to her roles in various horror films, including... Alone in the Dark in 1982, Critters in 1986, and its sequel, Critters 2, The Main Course in 1988, Amityville, A New Generation in 1993, Wes Craven's New Nightmare in 1994, Dead End in 2003, 2001 Maniacs in 2005, and its sequel, 2001 Maniacs, Feel the Screams in 2010. Ouija in 2014 and its prequel Ouija, Origin of Evil in 2016, and the four insidious movies starting in 2010. Shay is also well known for her comedic roles in numerous films by the Farrelly brothers, including Dumb and Dumber in 1994, Kingpin in 1996. You really like something loose There's something about Mary in 1998, Detroit Rock City in 1999, Me, Myself, and Irene in 2000. Stuck on You, 2003, and The Three Stooges in 2012. Overall, during her long career, she's appeared in more than 100 feature films. She routinely has five to six movies coming out any given year. Yeah, because she's awesome. I used to run, a friend of mine did a lot of work at Theater West in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles, and I would go see him, Matthew Hoffman, very great actor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she would be there a lot, and we kind of got to know each other a little bit. Nice. And she was super nice. I mean, one of the friendliest, most, you know, and... She just, she was one of those people that are like, well, what are you doing? You know, yeah, which is very yeah. rare for. Yeah. Yeah. But she was I, such a sweetheart. I actually interviewed her for the first Insidious movie oh, nice. uh, at the Magic Castle. Well, she's a genuinely yeah. nice person. You she can't is. fake that. Principal photography began on June 11th, 1984 and lasted a total of 32 days in and around Los Angeles, California. That's pretty quick. That is for the amount of special effects and stuff they did. Yeah, that's fast. The high school the protagonist attended was filmed at John Marshall High School, where many other productions such as Grease and Pretty in Pink have been filmed. Mm. (laughs) During production, over 500 gallons of fake blood were used for special effects. I'm going to need at least 500 gallons of fake blood for the special effects. So much fake blood. Are you kidding me? What's our blood budget? It's at least 500 gallons worth. (laughs) Well, look, I'm going to have to make it with food coloring. Because I, I just got a, you know, 500 gallons is going to be a lot of fake blood. I, I can't go down to Cinema Secrets and just pick up uh, 500 gallons yeah, and, and, and little five, <laughs> little five ounce bottles. It's a lot of bottles. Yeah, it's gonna, it adds up. I'm the one I'm going to tell you is it adds up. For the blood geyser sequence, the filmmakers used the same revolving room set that was used for Tina's death. And that was brilliant. The revolving Such room good... scene was used so effectively in this movie. That, that opening sequence when Tina uh, was dying and and he was, like, in the corner yeah. and reaching out. Like, it was so brilliant. Yeah. It was done so well. Yeah. They used dyed water because the special effects blood did not have the right look for a geyser. During filming of the scene, the red water poured out in an unexpected way and caused the rotating room to spin. What a boom spinning! Much of the water spilled out of the bedroom window, covering Craven and Heather Langenkamp. Yeah. They filmed another take for the TV version in which a skeleton shoots out from the hollowed-out bed and smashes into the ceiling. Ooh. I remember this from the TV movie. Nice. Or the TV version, because I think it was the first time I saw it was TV. But I remember, and I when we were watching it again, I was like, oh, I felt like there was something more. And well, it's, I wonder why they didn't use it. I don't know. It seems more... Gross than it's, not having a it skeleton. Seems it seems like you, yeah, it seems like they would cut that out for yeah. the TV version rather right. than the other way. Maybe they didn't think people would understand that it was all of Depp's blood, and so they had to pop his little skeleton out. <laughs> they had to use the skeleton of a child because Johnny Depp's very small. He's very tiny. 
The scene where Nancy's attacked by Kruger in her bathtub was accomplished with a special bottomless tub. The tub was put in a bathroom set that was built over a swimming pool. During the underwater sequence, Heather Langenkamp was replaced with a stunt woman. The shot of the claw, the finger, the knife glove yeah. coming up between her legs, that is such a scary shot. Oh, it's so fantastic. And it, uh, it, it was That's one of those shots where they're like, mark it. Mark it for the trailer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The melting staircase in Nancy's dream was Robert Shea's idea based on his own nightmares. It was created using pancake mix. I mean, I had this nightmare where my stairs were, stairs were made out of pancake mix. <laughs> what? That would be horrifying. Why was it so scary? I had to get upstairs. I couldn't get upstairs. What, what did you need to do upstairs? Go to bed. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll use it, but that's not a very scary nightmare. <laughs> The film special effects artist Jim Doyle portrayed Freddy on the scene where his face and hands stretch through the wall and reach out for Nancy when she dreams. Again, a really effectively great shot. The wall was built by Doyle out of spandex. And the funny thing is that when you look at it now, it looks like it's bad CG. Yeah. But it was all practical. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was it was amazing. Well, because they had to really get the face in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, to, get yeah, the to get the actual stuff, yeah. look. About halfway through the film, when Nancy is trying to stay awake, a scene from Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead appears on television. Craven decided to include the scene because Raimi had featured a Hills Have Eyes poster in The Evil Dead. Nice. In return, Raimi featured a Freddy Krueger glove in the workshed scene of Evil Dead 2 and later in Ash vs. Evil Dead. Yep. I love it when these guys do that kind of stuff. Just little nods back and forth to each other. It's nice. Craven originally planned for the film to have a more evocative ending. Nancy kills Kruger by ceasing to believe in him, then awakens to discover that everything that happened in the film was an elongated nightmare. I don't believe in you, Freddy Kruger! Which, I mean, it makes sense, because they build towards that. What? Everything? That was just a really long nightmare. (laughs) However, New Line leader Robert Shea demanded a twist ending in which Kruger disappears and all seems to have been a dream, only for the audience to discover that it was a dream within a dream within a dream. Listen, this is what I demand, Craven. I demand that you have an ending, a twist ending. But it's got to be a dream, but not just a dream. A dream within a dream, but not just a dream within a dream. I want a dream within a dream within a dream. All right, make it happen, Craven. Are you finished in this town? According to Craven, the original ending of the script has Nancy come out of the door. It's an unusually cloudy and foggy day. A car pulls up with her dead friends in it, She's startled. She goes out and gets in the car wondering what the hell's going on, and they drive off into the fog with the mother left standing in the doorstep, and that's it. Very brief and suggestive that maybe life is sort of uh, dreamlike, too. She wanted Freddy Krueger to be driving the car and have the kids screaming. It all became very negative. I, I felt a philosophical tension to my ending. She said, that's two sixties. It's stupid. I refuse to have Freddy in the driver's seat, and... We thought up about five different endings, and the one we used with Freddy pulling the mother through the doorway amused us so much, we could not use it. Oh, my God. <laughs> the first time I saw that was like, what? It was... <laughs> what? The way she goes through that oh, door so brilliant. is so creepy and oh, so messed up. You know, it was like a sex doll or something, but it, it looks... It's so, so well done, and it's so, so unexpected, and... You know something's going down because the rag top is Freddy's sweater. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, a cool little nod, but the... The pulling, they made the right choice on yes. that ending because it amused, every time I see it still, it's, it's just the greatest ending ever. 
The film score was written by composer Charles Bernstein under the recommendation of his agent. Bernstein met with Wes Craven and was hired to score the film. Bernstein used an electric electric score. Wow. Bernstein used an electronic score since the film was low budget. Bernstein had previously scored films like Viva Knievel in 1977, starring Evil Knievel. Viva Knievel! Which is one of the greatest worst movies of all time. Uh, but Evil Knievel, baby! People were... Hey, a forgotten... It's like the Harlem Globetrotters. There was just stuff yeah. in the 70s that was so weird. We had a stunt guy named Evil Knievel that would just jump weird stuff. Snake he, Canyon. He liked to jump buses. buses. A lot of buses. Oh, and he got hurt all the time. I miss Evil Knievel. They need to, I think somebody's doing it, but there needs to be an Evil Knievel movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Love at First Bite in 1979, starring George Hamilton. It was funny. Funny movie. And he he scored Cujo in 1983. Cujo. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah. <laughs> Such a good movie. <laughs> His most recent score was for the 2015 TV movie Sharktopus vs. Whalewolf. Oh, man. When Sharktopus and Whalewolf finally meet together in the arena of tension... It's a, uh, it's quite a showdown. It was, it was actually the third movie in the Sharktopus series. <laughs> yeah, I think a friend of ours is in one of the Sharktopus Probably. movies, the Sharktopi movies, Sharktopuses, Sharktopuses. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the lyrics for Freddie's theme song, sung by the Jump Rope Children throughout the series and based on One Two Buckle Mashu, was already written and included in the script when Bernstein started writing the soundtrack. The melody for it was not set by Bernstein, but by Heather Langenkamp's boyfriend and soon-to-be husband at the time, Alan Pasqua, who was a session musician himself and co-composed the original CBS Evening News theme. Wow. Weird. <laughs> Bernstein integrated Pasqua's contri- contribution to his soundtrack as he saw fit. One of the three girls who recorded the vocal part of the theme was Robert Shea's then 14-year-old daughter. Per the script, the lyrics are as follows. One, two, Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better lock your door. Five, six, grab your crucifix. Seven, eight, gonna stay up late. Nine, ten, never sleep again, Freddy. She had to say Freddy at the end. Freddy Krueger. All right. <laughs> when the film was submitted to the Motion Picture Association of America film rating system, they required two cuts to grant it an R rating. Strangely enough, they were just two really bad acting cuts from Heather <laughs> Langenkamp. They're just like, uh, these are really bad. It was uh, essentially comprised 13 seconds of footage they had to cut out. Wow. Yeah, which is ridiculous. And the fact that there are people that are obsessed with the un- the uncut version. Really? Yeah. For 13 seconds. 13 seconds. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. A Nightmare on Elm Street premiered in the United States with a limited theatrical release on November 9th, 1984, opening Ooh. in 165 cinemas across the country. Oh, yeah. The spooky weekend of November 9th. It grossed $1.2 million during its opening weekend. The film was considered an instant commercial success. Got my money and Laser Tag Larry's money. The film eventually earned a total of $25.5 million at the U.S. and Canadian box office with a total of $57 million worldwide. Nice. Off of a $1.1 million budget. Yeah, that's a really 
nice payday. That is some profit. The film received some stellar reviews. Kim Newman wrote in the monthly film bulletin that A Nightmare on Elm Street was closer to a Stephen King adaptation with its small small town setting and... Invented monster myth. Newman concluded that the film found... Craven emerging from his recent career slump. Like Swamp Thing, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2 and Invitation to Hell. With a fine, perhaps definitive boogeyman to back him up. And that the film was a superior example of an overworked genre. With the success of the movie, sequels were bound to happen. Oh, man. This movie was so different. It ushered in a new horror age of the 80s that yeah. led the way for Chucky, yeah. you know, the wise cracking doll. You know, before, they were lumbering, yeah. soulless, yeah. talkless goons that just chopped you up. And yeah, they were scary. It was there were so many clones of Halloween and oh, Friday yeah. the thirteenth. And this was so different. Exactly. It yeah. had a fast moving, fast talking, scary, gross thing rip his face off just to show you how gross he is. <laughs> and it was really scary. I mean it was it was a genuinely frightening movie. It it literally it set up the con- the conceit that anything can happen. Oh, it yeah. didn't matter. It, dude, you you cannot be prepared for anything. All bets were off, all the rules. The bad guy ran. The bad guy could pop up anywhere. The bad guy could kill anybody at any time as yeah. long as they fell asleep. Yeah. You didn't know who was – I mean, of course, we knew Heather Langenkamp was going to survive. But yeah. basically, we didn't know anybody else. And it was really it was really well done. And it – as a teenager, a young teenager, couldn't drive yet or anything. Right. But as a young teenager, it really, really scared me because, you know – your dreams. Yeah, yeah. And it's and the movie did a good a, a well enough job of you not knowing when you were in the dreams. So it it literally anything could have happened. Yeah. You and think a, you're in reality and it's not, you're actually asleep and They were smart enough to make it all kind of a surreality. Yeah. So yeah. everything was a little foggy or a little right. overblown or a little too bright. A li- little bit out of focus. Exactly, or a little something. So yeah. you didn't exactly, you didn't know what was real and what wasn't, especially as you know, uh, Heather starts to get, you know, haggard with her gray hair. Poor, poor Heather. Uh, uh. But she got, I will have to say, the more haggard she got, the better her acting got, too. Because she... It, it, yeah, I think it. I think the part got better as the movie went on. Yes, she had more so did she. Yeah. she. yeah, yeah. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, was released in 1985, directed by Jack Shoulder, who did Alone in the Dark in 1982. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, was released in 1987. Directed by Chuck Russell, who would go on, go on to do a remake of The Blob in 1988 and The Mask in 1994 with Jim Carrey. The screenplay was by Wes Craven, Bruce Wagner, Chuck Russell, and Frank Darabont. Nice, Frank Darabont. So he, I think he, him and Bruce Wagner came up with the story idea, and then he got screenplay credit. People sure they love this credit. one. The the third one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I always thought it was the fourth movie for some reason, but, but this is the Dream one, Warriors. Yeah, is but this the, is yeah. the one that had, wasn't Patricia Arquette in three in Dream Warriors? I think so. Because it was like the, they were in like a mental hospital and yeah. nobody believed them or something. But they, it was, they were all, they were going to take charge. Yeah. And they were going to go fight him. And they were the Dream team. Warriors. Yeah, yeah. Plus it had that awesome song by Dawkin. Yeah. <laughs> you love that video. It's um, so good. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it had a lot. It, it hit a lot. Of, yeah, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street Four: The Dream Master was released in 1988, directed by Rennie Harlan, with a screenplay by Jim Wheat, Ken Wheat, and Brian Helgeland. Nightmare on Elm Street Five: The Dream Child was released in 1989, <laughs> directed by Stephen Hopkins, a second unit director on Highlander in 1986. Yeah, your favorite movie. Uh, that can be only one. 
uh, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare in 1991. Yeah, they were lying. That was directed by Richard Talele, who produced part four and would go on to direct Tank Girl in 1995. I love Tank Girl. I think it's an underrated, fun little sci-fi weird movie. Agreed. And anytime you could see Ice-T as a kangaroo man, you got to take it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare was released in 1984, featuring the return of Wes Craven as writer and director. This was kind of the beginning of this meta horror rebirth yeah. that led to Scream and yes. all of these, yes. the 90s horror right, genre. the new genre. Yeah, Craven was all over that. And then, of course, Freddy vs. Jason in 2003, directed by Ronnie Yu, a Hong Kong filmmaker who directed Bride of Chucky in 1998. So much hype for this movie. And I, the it was fun. It yeah. wasn't very good. It didn't live up to the hype. It's just these movies were all concept and bad yeah. execution at this yes. point. Yes. They just were like, okay, well, what if we take the guys and do this? You know, what if we take Jason and put him in space? How are you going to do that? Oh, freeze him? We'll just set it a thousand years later. <laughs> yeah, and somehow his weird corpse is on the space. Yeah, it just, they got, they, it just was concept. But here's the concept. Make a movie out of it. Yeah, yeah. Although I will say that Jason X has my favorite kill in the Friday the 13th series. Jason X, where they're in the, uh, um, the like simulation Oh, room, the camping thing. And he grabs one person in, <laughs> in the, the sleeping bag yep. and then uses them to beat the other to death. Yeah, that was and clever. Then, and then be- it was funny. But that's, yeah, but that's it. But um, this is what happened to all of the franchises. They yeah. were all murdered by bad writing yeah. and just trying to deliver a new movie every year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was competing with all of the other... You could only do so much. Yeah, there were like five horror movies that had 20 different sequels, yeah. and that's basically what we got, and people got sick of it and right. sick of them. Right. So, you know, we had to move on to something new. Beginning on October 9th, 1988, Freddy's Nightmares was an anthology series in the vein of The Twilight Zone, which featured different horror stories each week. The show was hosted by Freddy Krueger with Robert England reprising his role from the films. Yeah, doing the Crypt Keeper, basically. Essentially. Uh, he played more of a background character, but occasionally showed up to influence the plot of particular episodes. Hey, I'm here to influence the plot. <laughs> he would, apparently there was a couple where he just showed up. Hey, this is boring. <laughs> yeah. oh, I need to inject myself into it to mm, move it along. The series ran for two seasons and a total of 44 episodes, ending March 10th, 1990. Oh, right before my birthday. If you have any interest, both seasons are on Tubi right now. I'm going to have to check a little bit of that out, I think. I'm curious. i got to be honest. Uh, an NES video game was released in 1989. Just to go back, I love anthology series. I love them. I love yeah, them all. Same. I watched the Friday the 13th one. I love well, Tales I, from the Crypt. I think this is why. I think I was thinking of Freddy Nightmares when I'm thinking of the anthology series of Friday the 13th. Yeah. Which didn't have anything to do with that actual series no it was a bunch of it was like an old guy and two young people that looked for cursed objects yeah yeah uh an nes video game was released in 1989 uh which apparently just was a barn burner uh (laughs) yeah it it, it was just ridiculously convoluted i probably rented it i'm sure i played it yeah in 2010 a remake was released also titled a nightmare on elm street starring jackie early haley as freddy krueger the film was produced by Michael Bay, and that's pretty much all you need to know about it. Yeah, they took all the fun out of it and tried to make it some sort of serious thing, yeah. you know, and tried to get more into Freddy's psychology. And, you know, and I think they did actually make him a child molester killer. I think he was, yeah. In this yeah. one. And Jackie Earl Haley is a great actor, and but it's just, it's it doesn't work unless it's fun. Yeah. It's got to be no, that's goofy, character, yeah. and it's got to be a gritty retelling 
of A Nightmare on Elm Street is not anything anybody was looking for. Right, right. The film was intended as a reboot to the franchise, but plans for a sequel never came to fruition after the film received mostly negative reviews despite being a financial success. On August 7, 2015, it was reported that New Line Cinema was developing a second remake with Orphan writer David Leslie Johnson. Okay. I mean, Orphan was pretty good. I didn't yeah. see the Orphan 2 that just came out. I didn't see out. the new one that just came out. But yeah, it was, it was good. Uh, England expressed interest in returning to the series in a cameo role. Leslie Johnson later added that the work was in limbo due to the success of The Conjuring Universe, saying that... Everybody wants to see Freddy again, I think, so... I think it's inevitable at some point. Yeah, and I granted this is also seven years ago, so uh, who knows? I... Oh, it'll come back. Everything, nothing dies in this town. There's going to be a reboot. Yeah. It'll star, what, it'll probably star like Timothy Chalamet as oh, God. Freddy Krueger. <laughs> I thought that could be interesting. It would I be. Don't know. Timothy Chalamet's a great actor. I didn't, but, I didn't initially hate that, so <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, but if they're going to do it, if they're going to do it, let's do it. Let's, let's do yeah. it in a way, the best reboots or reimaginings whether it's cobra kai or the chucky series based on the movie child's play right uh they do it in a way that is fun it isn't super reverent yeah yeah it's not precious but it it finds a way to bring in all these things that the fans love yeah and 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 not make it necessarily fan service but make it fan friendly yeah they know what it, it they if you can find the heart of what makes these things fun right. and, and so classic and squeeze a little bit of that juice out, <laughs> then you're going to have a good remake or remaster or whatever. Yeah. I really yeah. think that they should do a Nightmare on Elm Street series like they did with Child's Play. Yeah. And maybe start with the beginning of Freddy, you know, when yeah. he was still – maybe do a dually, you know, where mm-hmm. you tell part of the old, you know, Freddy oh, yeah. becoming yeah, Freddy yeah, yeah, yeah. with – What's going on now, you know? Like so, a previous, yeah, yeah. Right, so like a splitty, you know? Yeah, you got yeah, the yeah. present and the past. I think it would be great. It would be really fun to to go back to that universe and, and delve in in a way that's more, it fills out the, the, the story more, but doesn't take itself too seriously. Right, right, like it right. can't be like a, a man hunter or, yeah, you yeah. know, some sort of gritty whatever, because then it, unfortunately... If you make a movie about a child killer or child molester, you got to, in this vein as a as a goofy horror movie. If you take it too seriously, then it doesn't work because then it's just it's a child killer. It's just dreary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, there's no fun. I mean, and that was the main problem with the remake. There's just no fun to it. No, and, it, and it's not. You want horror movies to be fun. That's what yes. makes them super scary. They're goofy, and 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 the acting isn't great, and the special effects are kind of wonky. Yeah, but it still hits you and it scares you. And this right. movie was one of the most effective, scary movies ever made. Yeah. And definitely did usher in the 80s version oh, yeah. of horror. Totally, totally. And and look, Wes Craven was a master, a master at horror. Yeah. You know, he wasn't the best director. He wasn't the best writer. But he made really f- – he got what horror was, which is getting together with your friends and getting scared. And yeah. that's why I love, like, Scream, because it's – a movie about getting together with your friends and getting scared, right? But there's real consequences to right, it, right? Right. You know, yeah. It's not, and it's it's very apparent that Wes Craven got better as he got as he aged. Oh, like yeah. he got better with every movie. Uh, I mean, Scream's phenomenal, and and this movie is too. But like, it's it's obvious you can see him getting more comfortable directing and and getting better, especially directing actors. I will. I'm going to say it. He was the king of the horror genre. Oh yeah. He redefined horror several times. 
You know, starting yep. with redefining Nightmare on Elm Street with that meta yeah. Freddy's New Nightmare, which was flawed but really interesting and yeah. and yeah. a concept that was a completely fresh take right. on the right. movie and revitalized it for me and also paved the way for the Scream franchise. It was kind of like yeah. the beginning of that. And so the guy up until when he passed, which was so sad, yeah, uh, he was working his butt off and making great movies and just... You could tell he enjoyed and knew what the horror genre was. Right. You know, he, Toby Hooper, uh, John Carpenter. Yeah. These are the masters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. And I think he's up there definitely with the greatest horror masters. Oh, yeah. For sure. For sure. Uh, yeah, watch these movies. They're all available on HBO Max except for part four for some reason. Oh, because it's so controversial. But they're all available. Give them a watch. Uh, I'm going to rewatch all of them before next week when Goodness. we come back for our um, our stepdad show. Nice. Uh, I'm in the middle of finishing the Chucky series, uh, the, the the film series. Right. I haven't watched the show yet, but um, I, I realized I hadn't watched any of the Chucky sequels. And man, do they get silly! <laughs> I gotta watch some of those too. Uh, but they're fun. They're fun, and it knows what it's doing. And 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 I'm I'm excited to rewatch the Nightmare on Elm Street series because I I do think that eventually it does get more serious, and and that it's it never but gets we'll too see. serious yeah. though. It gets it's excuse me. It always retains the goofiness because there's a certain goofiness to Freddy Krueger. Yes, he's terrifying the way he moves and stuff. Yeah. But he's always like, good each baby. You know, he's like the one-liner he's, guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and more so as the sequels go, he becomes even more Goofier, of self-parody yeah. and goofy. Um, but, again, what's really funny is, like, Last Spooktober was great, and I loved watching those movies. But for some reason, these movies have gotten me into the spooky season yeah. more so. Like, I'm really excited to watch some horror movies. Mm-hmm. In the next few weeks, leading up to Halloween, and I have to put it because I think these were my formative movies. These were yeah, my teen, yeah. you know, when it was my age. You know what I mean? I think it's because I was entering high school or close to high school when this movie came out, and then mm-hmm. you know, with it, these were the movies where I was age appropriate, right? Right. You know, when it could happen to me. You were you know? the audience for this. Exactly. Movie. I was way too young for like Friday the Thing. For yeah. when I watched Halloween, I was like the age of the kid <laughs> being babysat. So that was probably a little too young. But All right. Well, we'll be back next week. Uh, we got stepdad show. We'll talk about more spooky, spooky horror movies. And, oh yeah. And uh, and everything. It'll be great. What we've been up to, and uh, I'm excited. It'll be fun. Come to Friday. Many hardcore X-rated films. Under pseudonyms. Let me do that again because that hardcore. Okay. Yeah, he was just in something we saw. He was in Chucky. Was he? No, this is. He was in Nightmare on Elm Street that we just saw. (laughs) He was the sleep doctor. He was the sleep doctor. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming, Fantasy Island, already in progress.